All right, let's, let's say a quick prayer here. Father God, we come before you and ask that you would open your word to us this morning as Jason prayed. Help it to sink into our heart and change our hearts because of your extravagant and extraordinary love for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in John chapter 3 this morning. So if you will, 13. It's been, it's been a preaching week. That's all I can say. Car wouldn't start this morning, even though I installed a new part. But I'm here. Um, okay, so chapter 13, enroll your scroll, pull out your tablet or your clay cuneiform thingy or whatever you use to read your word. And while you're doing that, um, what do you think of as examples of extravagant or extraordinary love? You know, perhaps you might think of a sports star from humble circumstances who makes it big and, and goes and buys his parents a mansion, right, as a, as a, as a thank you. Or, or maybe a rock star who opens a restaurant near Skid Row and lets homeless people come in and, and eat a meal for free. That would seem to be extravagant and maybe extraordinary. How about some examples a little closer to home? For me personally, my parents live in a duplex that they built in the 1970s. When I was a little guy, my grandmother lived in one half of the duplex, and we lived in the other. And it, that was kind of fun, because with family close by, Christmas was always a very special time. See, Christmas Eve, we would drive the 45 minutes up to where uh, my mom's parents were, and so we'd have Christmas dinner with the Italian side of my family. Of course, it's Italian family, so it's pretty big, boisterous, lots of things going on. So that was fun. After dinner and presents, we'd jump back in the car and head home for dessert and more presents with my dad's mom and the German side of the family. Now, Christmas morning was kind of cool because it was just my mom and dad and sister and me. So it was just kind of was a lot more quiet, a little more intimate. And when I was about six or seven, I wanted a bike for Christmas, right? I mean, most kids about that age, you know, a bike is freedom, right? It's kind of fun. And, you know, a lot of the other kids in the neighborhood were getting bikes for Christmas birthdays or Christmas or whatnot. And so Christmas morning came, we opened a few presents under the tree, but no bike. Ah, But my parents led me next door to my grandma's house, where over the preceding weeks, my dad had been secretly working. There, gleaming with a bright new coat of red paint with black accents and a red bow, was my first real bike. Man, that was amazing. And you should have seen my dad's face. He was totally beaming to see how much I enjoyed that bike. And what was interesting, while I appreciated that, that beaming face back then, what I didn't understand until years and years later was what an extravagant and extraordinary act of love it was for that bike to be there. See, as it turned out, finances were really, really tight for my family that year. And to make my dream happen, my parents had managed to find a used bike, and my dad spent some of his precious free time refurbishing and repainting that bike. No wonder he was just beaming when he saw how much I loved it. Now, hopefully, that story will remind you a little bit of the story that Jason told a few weeks ago about the blanket that his daughter Katie made for him under some similar circumstances. See, these are both examples of extravagant and extraordinary love. And what's common to my story and Jason's is the heart of love behind the gift. 
See, in both cases, the hearts involved recognized needs and met them in extravagant and extraordinary ways. Katie could have made a smaller blanket. We saw that cool picture of this massive thing that she made for her dad. My dad could have just cleaned the bike up a little bit and stuck a bow on it. But instead, Katie and my dad went to extravagant and extraordinary lengths to show love. They didn't spend gobs of money to make it happen, but they invested huge sums of love to make it happen. And that's both extravagant and extraordinary because investing huge sums of love is such a precious and rare thing in this world. You know, when, when we quote John 3.16, we really need to consider the extravagant and extraordinary love that it represents. You know, we, we easily rattle off, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and whoever, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That extravagant and extraordinary love wasn't just the 33 years that Jesus spent on earth. That love was put in motion right after the fall. God spent thousands of years preparing things so at just the right time, He would send His Son into the world to save it by taking on the punishment that we deserve and dying on our behalf. And if that's not extraordinary and extravagant, I don't know what is. Now with that in mind, let's turn to John chapter 13. And we're going to find today that our passage has kind of two distinct sections. See, the first section involves all 12 of the original disciples. And the second involves only the 11. But what unites them both is the extravagant and extraordinary love of Jesus. What unites us to Jesus is his extravagant and extraordinary love. What draws others into the kingdom is his extravagant and extraordinary love displayed in and through us. Now, I'm intentionally highlighting the theme right from the start because I want your hearts to be sensitized to Jesus' extraordinary and extravagant love displayed in this passage as we work our way through the verses. And to further set the table for today's passage, let's go back to the beginning. Right? John 1, starting in 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Folks, this is still the Jesus that we'll read about today. Fully God, fully man. Creator of the ground He was walking on, and the people He was offering salvation to. The one being in the universe who most deserves our praise, glory, honor, loyalty, and love. And with that, let's read from John chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, remember, Jesus knows what's coming next, right? We're getting really close to the cross. What comes next is betrayal, torture, mockery, the perversion of justice, abandonment, and death. And despite that, 
His focus was on loving the disciples to the end. That's extravagant and extraordinary. How many of us would do that? I mean, most of us would worry ourselves silly knowing that that sort of thing was in our immediate future, right? Not Jesus. To quote the eminent theologian Mike Abraham, I wish he was here today, that'd be funny. Uh, Redeemed men, women, and children was a price worth paying. Let's continue. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He who came from the presence of the Holy God and was going back to the presence of the Holy God assumed the humble posture and appearance of the lowliest of servants and washed the dirty, stinky, calloused feet of his disciples. Let that sink in. The purest, cleanest, holiest being in the universe, King of kings and Lord of lords, one with the Father, knelt as the lowest of servants and washed the dirty, stinky, calloused feet of sinful man. And he washed the feet of all 12, each with their own issues, even the one he knew would deny him, even the one he knew would betray him. Friends, that is extravagant and extraordinary love. Continuing on. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. To appreciate the context here, we need to realize that bathing in those days was a bit of a different matter, right? Water was scarce. Bathing was often the equivalent of a sponge bath. And you could easily clean everything except the dirty, stinky, calloused feet you're standing on. And the thing about sin is that we can look pretty clean to the casual observer, right? Indeed, we can live pretty good lives, right? But apart from Christ cleansing us from sin, it still remains. And that's what's being brought forth here. Remember, too, that a lot of Jewish religious practice included things like ritual cleanings or cleansing. You might remember this from our discussion a few weeks ago about the Pool of Siloam. 
A cleansing was a representation of repenting of sin so that one could properly honor our holy God. Now with that, good old Peter, right? (laughs) He at one level gets the fact that he isn't worthy to have his feet washed by the Messiah. He doesn't think he's worthy to have Jesus wash his feet. He understands to a degree that his heart is still sinful. And with that, he asks Jesus to wash his hands and his head as well. See, Jesus is pointing out to him and us that we can only be clean if Jesus fully washes away our sins. Now, Peter's heart, Peter's heart has been being transformed throughout his time with Jesus. And that wasn't the case with Judas. See, despite being in Jesus' inner circle, despite hearing him preach, despite witnessing the miracles, Judas' heart remains unchanged, unclean. Jesus washed Judas' feet, but the rest of Judas wasn't clean. Note that despite that, despite knowing that that Judas would betray him, Jesus still washed his feet. In other words, if we think of feet washing as a display of the extravagant and extraordinary love of Jesus, Jesus didn't hold back from showing that love to Judas. And if Jesus didn't hold back in sharing that love, then neither should we. Now, there may be some here this morning who are, who are a bit like Jesus, Judas. You know the verses. You can quote the stories. Maybe you grew up in church. But the dirty sin that the devil puts into your heart is somehow more appealing than the fresh, clean newness of a heart washed by Jesus. And the dirt of that sin may be hard to spot. See, it doesn't look all that dirty. After all, you live a good life. You look pretty clean to those around you. But friend, how clean are your feet? Jesus answered him, If I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Friends, Jesus isn't instituting a sacrament of feet washing here, which I'm kind of glad for, and you wouldn't want to see my feet. He's teaching the future leaders of his church and us, all of us, about humility. And there are actually two important principles demonstrated here. The first principle is to not put yourself above others. And that's an active thing that we are to be doing, watching our own hearts. No matter how powerful or popular you are, you aren't Jesus. And Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, we can only serve others in true humility with extravagant and extraordinary love when we do so in, under, and to Christ, in his power, under his covering for our sins, and seeking to glorify Christ alone, not ourselves. The second principle we see here is this. To help prevent that tendency to put ourselves above others, surround yourself with humble friends who are willing to help keep you humble. To lovingly and humbly confront or confess sins with. Whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, our flesh craves power and attention in some fashion. And the more we're given either of those things, the more we tend to want them and go to extravagant and extraordinary lengths to get them and keep them. And we all know that we aren't the best stewards of our own hearts. So Jesus instructs us to help keep each other humble by calling for each of us to demonstrate humility especially in our day and age, it'd be really weird for us to actually wash each other's feet, right? And likewise, it's not normal for us to have deep enough relationships with each other to help keep each other humble as we deal with sin in our lives. Yet, that's what we're called to. Now, don't take that as a license to be everyone's conscience. It's not what we're talking about here. If you think about the story of the speck and the log, right? Deep, trusting relationships take time to build. And if you think about it, Jesus took, did that over three years with these men. Be open to building such relationships so you can have that in your life. But Jesus says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. See, it's not enough to simply know that we're to actively mind our hearts and help others do the same. It's just head knowledge. It becomes heart knowledge when we're actively doing these things in, under, and to Christ. And the blessing here is the extravagant and extraordinary love of Jesus. It's given to you. It's being demonstrated by you. And that love is yours forever in Christ. So the power and attention stuff, that can disappear in an instant never to return. Which would you choose? And notice how opposite this is to the way of the world. You know, one of the chief means that people use to obtain and maintain that power and attention is fear. They can cause fear or they can stir up fears you already have. And when they wield fear as a weapon, it can be obvious. Maybe it's dehumanizing rhetoric to distance us from them. Maybe it's violence. It can also be subtle. I think all of us have felt peer pressure. It can even masquerade as godliness. Have you ever heard a preacher or somebody say, you'll be blessed if you do this thing that sounds holy, but don't look too closely because that thing they're asking you to do isn't truly biblical. That's why it's critical to understand Jesus as he presents himself to us in Scripture. He's our model to follow. 
It is his extravagant and extraordinary love that saves us, sustains us, and brings joy to us. And his model for leadership is humble service that demonstrates extravagant and extraordinary love, not fear, force, or coercion. Jesus continued, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has, been, has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. What we see here is that part of Jesus' extravagant and extraordinary love was how well he taught his disciples. He made sure they were making the connections between the prophecies made about him and their fulfillment, even though that understanding sometimes didn't come until after his resurrection. But it was more than that. He had handpicked these 12 men, each for a purpose. He had patiently invested in them for three years. They had lived and labored together for three years. They had survived the plots of the Pharisees and the dangers of many journeys together. As many here can testify to from their own experiences in life, that sort of connectedness bonds people together in love in extraordinary and extravagant ways. And I think that was why his spirit was so troubled over the betrayal. And yet, he offers a glimpse ahead to the coming Holy Spirit. The 11 who would ultimately endure would receive the Comforter and in doing so be reconnected to Jesus and through Jesus to God the Father. Judas would not. Now, there, when I was reading this, there are two odd things about this particular portion of the chapter that, that struck me. The first is Jesus' comment to, to Judas, right? And the second is the lack of action from John, because that was the disciple who he loved. So that first oddity, think of this. If you knew one of your friends was going to betray you, why on earth would you tell them something like this? 
what you were going to do, do quickly. Seems strange. But based on the preceding dialogue, I think there may be two motivations behind it. The first motivation being that, as Bill taught the other week, the hour had come. God's plan of salvation, which had been slowly unfolding since the fall, was ready to reach its culmination. Jesus knew he was to be betrayed by Judas. He also knew that his death and resurrection was needed to take away the sins of those who would follow him. And he knew that God would be glorified because of his sacrifice. If we factor in verse 12, 27, where Jesus says, now is my soul troubled, it would seem that he may have been anxious. That's not quite the right word, but it's the best I could come up with. Anxious for these events to take place. I think this shows his humanity. After all, don't most of us get anxious before undertaking something that can bring equal measures of pain and glory? Think of the pressure on a musician before an intense performance in front of a demanding crowd. Or an athlete before a championship game. (laughs) This was the ultimate championship game. I think the second motivation is shown by what happens after Judas has left the room. See, once Judas has left, it is down to just Jesus and the 11 disciples who truly believed. The 11 disciples who, after Pentecost, would change the world by the power of the Holy Spirit working through them to spread the extravagant and extraordinary love of Jesus. With Judas out of their midst, Jesus immediately begins what is arguably his most passionate and direct appeal to his disciples. He lays out the gospel with clarity and grounds it all in extravagant and extraordinary love. Jason's going to bring this this section of Scripture to life for us starting next week as we read those beautiful words of love spoken by Jesus to his disciples and to us. Now, the second oddity is why did John do nothing with that information? knowing that Judas was the betrayer. I mean, most of us would probably want to do something, right? Get in there and tackle the guy or something. Well, John actually did do something with the information. He wrote it down. So there was another confirmation available to establish that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. He also didn't tell Peter, right? Peter's the hothead of the group. So... Peter might have actually tried to rashly go out and stop Judas, like most of us would have done. And it seems that Jesus knowingly, wisely, and immediately redirected the focus of the eleven, and especially Peter, to the things of God. See, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him... God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love 
for one another. With Judas on his way to betray Jesus to the Pharisees, the stage has been set for the final act of extravagant and extraordinary love. The Son of Man would be lifted up on the cross to redeem fallen man to the glory of God. Jesus would rise again, give some final encouragement to his true disciples, and then return to heaven, leaving his disciples to spread the good news and to make more disciples from those in every tribe, tongue, and nation. And as he's done all along, he's preparing them for what is to come. Giving them enough information to be prepared, but not so much as to overwhelm them. And he gives them perhaps one of the most critical instructions of all. Love one another as he loved them. That means that the 11 and every follower of Jesus are to love one another with the same extravagant and extraordinary love that Jesus did. And why would this be important? Well, for starters, even those in the world demonstrate a degree of love for one another. If we look to Matthew chapter 7, we read this. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So what is to differentiate the Christ follower from the rest of the world? From the Buddhist? The Muslim? The atheist? It's love. Extravagant and extraordinary love. Love where the leaders aren't seeking power or attention, but serve Jesus and others with genuine, <laughs> dirty, stinky, calloused, feet-washing humility. Will they do it perfectly? Let's find out. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, Peter will ultimately be the rock that would lead the early church but not before denying Christ, not just once, but three times. Jesus again acts in extravagant and extraordinary love to prepare Peter for the denial and reassure him that they would ultimately be reunited in heaven. I think a lot of us can relate to Peter. He gets all fired up, but when tested, he folds under the pressure, at least initially. I believe that like Peter, many of us need to be tested so that we truly understand the condition of our hearts. So that when we represent Christ to the world, we are truly ready to love others with the extravagant and extraordinary love of Christ. To do that in ways that glorify God and not ourselves. Do we truly turn the other cheek when we're wronged? 
or in our heart of hearts do we get angry and indignant and demand instant justice? See, Jesus asks Peter and us the tough question, will you lay down your life for me? Isn't that the ultimate expression of extravagant and extraordinary love? Peter and most of the apostles ultimately did lay down their mortal lives for Jesus. Many of our brothers and sisters today do the same. Most of us don't face that mortal danger. And yet the pressure to seek the glory that comes from man is very real. And it's a pressure we often don't recognize. It is that ever-present of a pressure. I challenge you this morning to ask the Holy Spirit to help you recognize that pressure. Not so that we can set our face against the world and dare it to strike us down. Jesus didn't do that. We want to recognize it so that we can respond to it in ways that Jesus did. And we can start by washing the feet of others, even our enemies. And I don't necessarily mean that literally, but let's look beyond even the humble posture of Jesus washing the feet of others. See, it starts with recognition. Jesus observed that to be fully clean, the feet of the disciples needed to be washed. They needed to see a demonstration of true humility, a demonstration of extravagant and extraordinary love. For you and I, that means some interesting questions for us. Do we take the time to recognize the needs of those in our circle? How about those just outside of our circle? Do you give yourself bandwidth to even take that time? Do you meditate before the Lord so that his mud can open your eyes to the needs and his spirit can empower your service? See, as we begin to consider how to apply this to our own lives, we need to see the interconnectedness of what Jesus is bringing forth here. In our own power and strength, none of us can even find our way to Christ. We need the Holy Spirit to prepare our hearts. I mean, look at Judas, right? He was in Jesus' inner circle and still betrayed him. Peter seems to make this brash statement that in his own strength, he'll stay true to Christ even unto death. Of course, soon thereafter, Peter denied Christ. For us to love the way that Jesus loved, there's no way we can do it in our own strength. Our expressions of extravagant and extraordinary love, our feet-washing moments, have to be done in, under, and to Christ. Otherwise, we serve Christ for our own ends, not out of love for our Savior and His love for us. And see, recognizing that we can't truly express love without help, Jesus prepares his followers for the coming Holy Spirit who will enable them to love the way that Jesus loves. As I said, we can't and won't do it perfectly. We may even mess up in really big ways. But as we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, he will lift us up. And in gratitude, we in turn lift others up to him 
so that they can experience the same extravagant and extraordinary love of a Savior who died for them, that they may truly live. See, the power and attention, that's like walking on the edge of a knife. What little happiness it might bring comes with near constant worry about losing it. Just a little slip one way or the other, and we fall off the edge. Friends, we don't have that worry with Jesus. He promised to never leave or forsake us. We may stray a little, leaning to one side or the other. But as Paul put it in Romans, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So friends, even in the midst of trials, we know that he is with us and for us. That is love. That is extravagant and extraordinary love. Love that the world's the world needs to see and hear about. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we long to bring you glory. We long to share the extravagant and extraordinary love that Christ has shown us with others. And we don't do it well. We know it. We know that our, our expressions of love are, are poor. But Lord, you've given us your Holy Spirit to continually wash us of our sins, to make us more and more acceptable to you, to empower acts of love, extraordinary acts of love that are different from the world, that the world may see Christ and know that there is love is so much deeper than they ever imagined it could be. Help us to share that love with others. In Jesus' name. Amen.